Hello and welcome to Two Hearts, a new Who podcast. I am James. And I'm CJ. And this is the only podcast where we've had it all nipped and tucked and flattened until there's nothing left. Which doesn't sound too good. And every week on Two Hearts, we are taking a look at a new episode of New Who, starting from the 2005 revival. And this week we are looking at the end of the world. The end of the world. You know, it feels like the end of the world sometimes these days. It certainly does. Topical humour. Topical humour. Obviously, we are still in the middle of a, a pandemic, um, which feels odd to say um, out loud. But yeah, It does, world. doesn't it? Because there's a sort of a sense of normalcy that's set in at this point, um, which is very concerning. <laughs> totally concerning, especially when you think about how we're all going to have to one day come out of this into a world that may be completely different. I don't know. Completely different. Exactly right. Working from home, changes to capitalism, who knows what's going on. Uh, yeah, you um, know. A pretty big change, though, is that we launched a Doctor Who podcast. We certainly did. Um, and it's been good so far. I think a lot of people have been really like positive online. So thank you for anyone who's liked and shared the show with their friends. Um, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I know we've got a few global listeners now, which is very exciting. Um, I feel very honoured, let's say. Me too. Also, just that anyone would even care to listen to our opinions. I mean, gosh. Well, (laughs) I don't even care to listen to my opinions, (laughs) so I can't imagine why anyone else would. Yeah, that's exactly (laughs) right. Um, On that note, though, we are always open to your opinions as well. Uh, I put up a tweet last night on our Twitter at two hearts pod which is a, a two instead of the word two uh basically every week before we record like we're more than happy to take your opinions on the episode or questions on the episode about how we feel about it and we're more than happy to read them out on the show because we love engagement we do we really really do so what's been going on in your week with doctor who there's been a, a couple of little bits of doctor who in the news nothing yeah. amazing but there's well, some stuff obviously online there's been the rewatches. um I don't know if you've been following them. I have. I've seen a fair few of those, actually. I've seen everybody using the hashtags and getting involved, and it's been lovely. It's been really, really good. And I think the one, yeah, they most recently did the Human Nature Family of Blood two-parter with Paul Cornell tweeting along. That's a good one. It's such a good one. And I already knew this anecdote, but (laughs) seeing him write it down again was so funny because after... I love this. Uh, after he wrote the episode and it went out and everything, he got a, a letter from the one and only Kate Bush congratulating him on the episode. And the I, Kate Bush? Yeah, the Kate Bush. The Kate Bush. And I was just trying to imagine what it would be like to actually receive such a letter. Mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. It would be. That that would be. That, that's very wholesome. That's yeah. very wholesome. On the topic of wholesome Doctor Who news, uh, we've also had all the former Doctors, well, almost all of them, uh, <laughs> unite to film a, a very uh, sweet message to the care workers and um, I guess anybody affected by this whole COVID-19 crisis. They all did a little, uh, what, like a little spiel into a Zoom camera. Yeah, it was part of the BBC Big Night Inn, which was a charity event around coronavirus and the ongoing pandemic. But it was, I think it, the whole purpose of the program was just to rally people's spirits knowing that everyone Mm. is stuck inside or in bad situation so this video is just to yeah like rally everyone's spirits and have all the i mean it's all of living doctors bar one are in 
that one video. I mean, that's, that's very impressive. Uh, absolutely. What I liked most about it, I mean, obviously it, it really does, it's unfortunate to not have Christopher Eccleston be involved. Um, it's no secret amongst the fandom that he has a very contentious relationship with the mm. production of Doctor Who. And it's a real bummer because obviously we, we quite enjoy what he did with the show and it would have been nice to have him there. Uh, but what I did like quite a bit was having Joe Martin show up. Um, oh, I, I think know. Having the, the Ruth Doctor in there is a really lovely sign of like solidarity for um, the creative choices they're making with the show and moving forward and sort of honouring what what the the progressiveness that they're they're trying to go for. I think it's quite uh, quite good. Absolutely, um, it was a shock. I will say to see her there because obviously you know she's only been in one and a half episodes. Is a relatively new Doctor. Um, I guess it just speaks to the level of love that people feel for that incarnation that we've barely seen. Exactly, but she made such an impression. She really, really um, did. Martin has a really uh, commanding presence on screen, and she brought so much energy to that. That what, like, twenty minutes of screen time as the actual Doctor? <laughs> exactly. It's so it's so slight. But have you? I don't know if you follow her on Twitter. Her Twitter is so darling. Um, oh, I think. It? Her, her profile picture is like a very obviously home like shot picture of her in her costume and then oh. um i think her header is uh, her name in the credits for the episode in jejun uh fugitive of the jejun oh that is so beautiful like we will very- link to put it in the show notes today so that you guys can check it out because i definitely will be after this that sounds lovely so i guess um now is there's no time like the present to get to the end of the world Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's, let's no, we can't do that let's, again. Let's, let's, no, we can't have <laughs> the same post joke in two episodes. Um, a, a little context behind that. That is a, a, a running gag between CJ and I, and it, it slipped its way into the show. And I dropped in the Meryl audio because I thought I needed a reference point, but I didn't really explain it either. So, no. you know, we're figuring this out. We're getting it done. Yeah. So I think we should just dive right into it and discuss the end of the world. We definitely should. And what I like about the end of the world is that it itself just dives right into it. We've got that really fantastic flow from Rose running into the TARDIS doors at the end of Rose and then running into the TARDIS at the beginning of this episode. Like it's just a seamless transition straight through the next story. Uh, And it, it really just imbues it with an immediate sense of like urgency and like rushed energy and excitement that she's feeling at, at uh, that life choice that she's just made. And I think it's perfect as a, as an opening. Totally. It's a very seamless transition from the opener to this episode. Shall I just give a, a quick sort of rundown of the episode itself just for anyone who hasn't seen or. Yeah. 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 I think a little plot synopsis at the beginning of uh, each discussion is probably not going to go astray. Yeah. So the end of the world, um, I'm just reading off IMDb at the moment. This is where I'm going to get most of my... Because that went um, so well last time. <laughs> and this one's just as bad, <laughs> if I can be blunt. <laughs> it's, it, it's purely one sentence, not even like two lines, like a line and a half. And it just says, the doctor takes Rose to the year five billion to witness the destruction of Earth. And I mean... I mean, that is the plot. That is absolutely the plot. And I think that's an important distinction to make as well, because let's be upfront about this. The end of the world isn't concerned with plot, if I can say that. No, it's not. It's very much character first, plot second, um, which is oddly enough, given the excesses of Moffat that I do enjoy, it's strange to say that plot second, character first is the kind of story I prefer. Um, But uh, I think this really nails um, what the show probably should be about, you know, focusing mainly on the Doctor and the yeah. Companion 
And then everything around them is kind of secondary and uh, providing like a nice framework and support for more of their interactions. Absolutely. And I wouldn't want this kind of episode every single week, but you're right in saying that, you know, the character beats and the main interactions between the the cast is, is what should be important um, and at the core of the show. I think the plot in this particular episode has was kind of left by the wayside, but it's less important because as we've already said, we're establishing a new show. They're, they're establishing a new show and needs to take their time to build these characters up. From exactly. The uh, you, you need a lot of room to tell this kind of story to a new audience. And this episode does provide a, like a really fantastic stage that is light enough on the plot that you can start building up the world and i mean it's our it's our first proper introduction to the tardis uh, like the new tardis and not just you know casual shots and because uh, i feel like the first time rose is in there and her and the doctor have their little chat it's it's much more about rose being like oh they go on the inside kind of moment um whereas in in this episode we get a, we get a good look at the console we get a good look at the space we do but like again and the same thing as when that first introduction to the tardis in um in rose like all of the the camera work is focused on the faces and the reactions of those two characters in that space we do get a bit more like playing in that TARDIS space, but it is still centred on their kind of back and forth. Yes, yeah, I suppose. I, I think it was just more that, um, you know, when they're having the discussion about where they should go in time, and he's, you know, pulling on all the little dials and levers and doing the mm. pumping action, and you get that, like, really cartoonish moment. Um, you do get, like, a solid look at the space. Totally. And did you notice he's got, like, one of those old, like, this is very 2005, he's got one of those old, like, glasswork paperweights in his hand? <laughs> <laughs> I did not notice that. Uh, I, I would believe it. It was the first thing I noticed. I love the lighting in this. I like the particular the lighting of the TARDIS in this first season. I just want to point out when in later seasons, I just realized they get much more golder. The inside of the TARDIS becomes more golden and warm and happy, but it's quite green and moody and uh, almost sinister here. Yes, yeah, very much so. I, I think something that we've noted with Thirteen's uh, TARDIS, it's quite dark in there, but it's still it, it's still very like it, it's got that warmth that you're talking about. Um, whereas if you look at this one, the darkness is used in much more of an alien way, which makes sense for where the show is at because it's not a familiar space to us at the moment. It's meant to be a little bit mm. isolating and weird. Yeah, absolutely. But um, it's almost claustrophobic, I guess, the way they're doing it. Yeah. And I, I've got to say, I really prefer it because so much of the like the flaws, I guess you could say, of any set are hidden with really good mysterious lighting. So when you get more brighter and, and you can see more of it, it's like it becomes more of an enclosed faker kind of space. In my opinion, let's talk about Christopher Eccleston's bike pumping. Let's. Well, you want to talk about losing the magic in a scene. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think the bike pumping and the. Uh, I mean, you could put the Benny Hill theme song over that moment, and it would still work. It's. It's certainly not taking it maybe as seriously as the lighting and set design is taking it. No. Um, but you do need those moments of levity sometimes, especially with what they do in this episode, because things yeah. do get very dark. So to yeah. start off with, uh, to match Rose's initial excitement with a scene that is very like, like goofy mm. and exciting, um, I, I do think you need that that balance at the beginning. I like how that they're egging one another on in this scene. Like he's like, oh, we could go further, and she's like, oh, you want to bet? And they're just like, yeah, we're going to go further and further and further into the like very far distant future, five billion years in fact. Yes. Yes, definitely. Um, and I, I do, and this is something we'll get to later because it's one of our sort of bigger talking points, but 
I, I like that she inevitably stumbles into a massive existential crisis moment in, in those choices there. Absolutely. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, let's talk about it. She They step off the TARDIS. I like that. Uh, before we go into that, uh, I like that moment where she just turns to me and she's like, what's out there? And the excitement mm. and, like, everything's ahead of her. It's so, it's, I, yeah, I can't overstate how exciting it is to be watching these episodes again from the beginning and seeing that mm. all unfold again. Absolutely. It's just lovely. Um, but they step outside of the TARDIS. Um, they've gone to the year five billion. This is Rose's first trip on the TARDIS out into space. And there's that wonderful moment where she walks out of the TARDIS and it, it's so mundane, the room that they walk into. She's, you can sort of sense the disappointment mm. in her face. And then... Yeah, it's just like a museum like viewing window. Like, it's nothing. <laughs> exactly. But then the window goes up and you have that beautiful, beautiful, like, um, effect shot of earth and the sun and mm. the music comes in and I think that moment is really when you know that this episode is something special yes absolutely yeah. it, it goes from mundane to magical at like the snap of a finger and it's it's so beautiful I really like they, they have like a conversation there where the doctor has mm. the line you never take the time to imagine the impossible maybe you survive and that hits very differently during times like now doesn't it yeah i noted the same thing about that like the level of hope that uh russell to davies uh, iteration of the show is so yes concerned with exactly it doesn't um, like i think we still the show still has that now it, it, it always will it's fundamental to its like um dna but um yeah yes. it just it, <laughs> it doesn't slap as hard as it used to no no that's exactly right um it's yeah, there's just something really wonderful about that moment, and it's it's a nice balance to what comes later in this episode, which is quite a cynical take on the end of humanity, or rather the uh, the, the future of humanity. But as an yeah. intro to things, it is it's it's quite beautiful, and it does make you feel like a, a, a like twang of hopefulness <laughs> about our current situation. Like we're all very concerned about: is this going to wipe us out? Is this going to collapse the economy? you know is the man in the white house going to ruin everything kind of thing mm. but it is nice to still take the time to imagine the impossible that we might just survive which and it's funny it's a funny moment isn't it because it, he turns it around at the end and says welcome to the end of the world yes and then rose turns and she looks at it and we get that fantastic smash cut of the you know the the <laughs> music starting up yeah exactly <laughs> I, i've written it down as e e e u h h h g g h h h h because you just you can't quite explain what that that beginning of the intro music sounds like i think that the, the people who make the show in, in the classic series they used to call it a scream the doctor who scream oh okay um, i mean should, i can see that traditionally that kind of the, the other thing we should also note is that this is the first new who episode with a pre-credits sequence and because the show went from a from a serialized format to this you know single episode 45 minute format they this pre-titles is basically the cliffhanger for the like the midway point there. yeah exactly well it's it's the hook you know it's the it's thing the that it, it baits the hook and then says come on let's go on an adventure and, and it works so beautifully it does and what an adventure um because after the titles we get that wonderful real effects shot of the, the station which is a uh, platform one is it called platform one i actually forgot uh platform one sounds about right platform one yeah it's it's really really good and one thing i noted to you before 
that I didn't know about this episode is that it was actually not only, I think, like the most effect shot used in a single episode of Doctor Who, even today, but like it has more effect shots than some blockbuster movies. Like this episode has 200 effect shots and that's mad. 203, actually. 203, there you go. The fantastic Doctor Who Confidential, which was essentially these little like documentaries mm. about every episode that aired after the episodes aired, they're, I think, mostly on YouTube. The, the one for this episode definitely is and it's absolutely worth watching because it's not just about the end of the world. They also do this really fantastic run through of the visual effects history of the show um, all the way back to like, you know, the Tom Baker era stuff. Um, and it's really interesting to see how the show has progressed to the point where, like you said, they're doing more visual effects shots than blockbuster films that were releasing at the time. Uh, and they talk about how in sort of in a post Star Wars world because this would have been you know just after or during the the time of the prequels which were a very digital effects cgi heavy affair um mm. that changed the way audiences view cgi uh, for, for better and for worse like they obviously created a bit of a discourse there um that the show felt the need to rise to the occasion um in its own unique way at least it's absolutely a showcase for the show um in terms of what it can do and what it points to for the future as well um because i think the show had never looked this good before Yes. And it was, it was just showing off, really. They're just showing off. Well, that's it. Like, they've got the budget. They've got the, the attempt. Like, obviously, the BBC was quite um, invested in this project. Uh, so it's, it's, it's just good to see. We love to see it. We love to see it. But I do know that they spent, like, an inordinate amount of money on this episode just to show off. And no other episode has been this big since. Really? Yeah. Well, you, you got to flex. You know, if, if you're going to get people interested in, <laughs> like we talked about in the first episode, if you're going to get the audiences back involved into a show that had become mostly a goofy joke, uh, you, you've got to show off a little bit. You've got to say, hey, here's what you're coming here for. Uh, and this episode does it. A lot better than Rose, I would say. I think Rose is a fantastic mm. character episode and it makes you fall in love with what Billy Piper is doing with the character. Mm -hmm. uh, but this episode makes you fall in love with the idea of Doctor Who in a much bigger way. Totally. It's it's almost a mission statement. So they get they get onto the onto the platform and there's that line, uh, the the basic the doctor explains why they're there, what's happening basically, and says that the great and the good are assembling to watch the planet burn. And then he says, Well, when I say the great and the good, I mean the rich. And that opens up a big part of this episode, which is the the level of wealth. I guess oh, it's not even a big part, but it's 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 commented upon is the level of wealth. Uh, I think it's pretty consistently, especially when you get into Cassandra's weird uh, like insurance scam plot by the end. I, I think this episode is very preoccupied with social commentary in such a subtle way, though, that it feels organic. Uh, and, and that's very impressive on Davies's part in terms of his writing. Definitely. And then you get that wonderful line where Rose says, says, um, is this what you do? You, you come in at the last minute and you save it. And he says, no, time's up. Yes, exactly. And that works so well again to Rose. She immediately clocks on to what the whole doc, the doctor's whole shtick is. You know, she, she sees him, she sees him in a, a crisis situation and she knows like, oh, this is what you do. You, you jump in and you stop the world from blowing up essentially. Uh, and that's why it's such a wonderful subversion that this time it's not a it's not a story about stopping the end of the world. It's just a story about accepting it. I know it, it's in the episode title, obviously, but it's it's such an interesting choice that he brings her this far into the future, and then this is the thing he chooses to show her. He he chooses mm. to show the last human the end of the earth. And I think that speaks to his inability to properly process um, and comprehend 
maybe her emotional state or even the state of a feeling being because at this point in his timeline he's so far removed from the concepts of home and uh having sort of people of your own um that he's just become a little bit of a monster i think we'll get to that i think there's a, bit, there's a later scene that better illustrates this this is true this is true we'll we'll, we'll, we'll shelf that one, uh, we'll shelf but that one but that, that's a big <laughs> gosh that's a big thing to say um <laughs> it is. So we get that, I think one of the key um, introductions of the Davies and the modern show in and of itself is introduced here with the psychic paper. I like how it's uh, like another shorthand for getting around, you know, the who are you, the kind of aspect of the story, which used to take up like a whole episode. If I could get a little bit uh, wanky and pretentious here, I think there is a interesting symbolic idea behind, um, you know, you've got this man who is out of time, out of, out of place, out of home and everything. And the way he introduces himself is with a blank piece of paper. <laughs> like he is just, he's nothing at this point. He has no identity of his own. And obviously, you know, the, um, the psychic paper is its own little plot device that's been throughout the show. Uh, but I just think it's interesting that at this point, it's, it's a nice little bit of commentary on the fact that his identity has essentially just been scrubbed. Yeah, he can be anyone and he's no one at the same time. Exactly. Um, an, an interesting lore question I have for you is I was always under the impression that the psychic paper showed the people that that were reading it what they wanted to see, not what he mm. wanted them to see. It's sketchy. <laughs> uh, it's, it, it's <laughs> Okay. It's exact purpose and uh, not even pur- so purpose. It's exact um the rules around it are very, very, very foggy because I think at, at times it, it does show him, it does show people what he wants them to see. At other times it shows him what his subconscious is, say, is thinking. Other times it's what their subconscious is thinking. Like it's, um, yeah, gosh, it's not well-defined, <laughs> but it, it does the job. I mean, that's why it doesn't have to be. It's like, the, it's like the sonic screwdriver. It doesn't have to be super well-defined. It's, it works for the show, not the other way around kind of thing. Totally. So then we get the steward, he pops up, and he's blue. We do. We, he's blue. But he's blue. I love how Rose, like, <laughs> sees a piece of psychic paper, and she's like, he's blue. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Her mind is one of my favourite things about her character. Just the, the things that she chooses to focus on in any given situation are so charming. <laughs> So yeah, she I, and and again, like she proves uh, Billy Piper proves in this episode just what an asset she is to the show. She's such a human face, definitely. And you you need a human face in this situation if you're going to throw people into the deep end as much as this episode does with the sci-fi stuff. Because Christopher Eccleston is not here to hold your hand. Like he doesn't even hold Rose's hand through this, uh, which no. is really interesting uh, change in their dynamic to what you see. Sort of, I guess everything past season one, basically, because. At every other point in the show, the Doctor is is usually quite concerned with how the companion is handling a situation where, as this one, he's just like, eh, whatever, <laughs> you're here to witness the end of the world, it's cool. It's funny that you say that, that like normally they hold the, the companion's hand, because I don't think that's really traditionally been the case. I think a lot of the times the Doctor's like quite happy to let them wander off and really only feels any level of like responsibility or guilt if they hurt themselves after the fact or he, sometimes he just gets really really annoyed that they've like gone and you know yeah away. for sure i guess i don't mean hand holding in um any sort of like protective traditional sense maybe more of like a um in, an, in like an existential way the doctor at least sort of is sure. a buffer for the the human companion entering into a wild situation uh whereas 
here that just it's not the case at all he's just content to let her let it all wash over her true no that's very very true yeah he, he's obviously so disconnected from humanity at this point exactly yeah and we get that really wonderful moment <laughs> not a wonderful moment that's something listeners i said wonderful and awful lot in that first episode <laughs> and i apologize you really it's just one of my default words no i did i edited it i know i know what i said <laughs> uh, so we get this fantastic moment with rose <laughs> where um she's kind of looking around at all the aliens and she's like oh just me then and she realizes she's you know the only human there to witness the end of the world yes. and it's such a heavy moment and billy piper plays it with so much like like a weird combination of like wistful and and fearful it, it's it's mm. just beautiful and it's one of those little moments that you only get to really appreciate on on a show like the one that we're doing where you can slow down and say this, you know, 30 seconds to me says she's one of the best ca- characters we've ever had kind of thing. Totally. She has a lot of those moments actually in this episode when you think about like the Raffaello scene and the scene with, where she calls her mum, like where she really just kind of like, it just dials all the way down and I don't know, it's processing it. I can't even yeah say what that Yeah, it's, it's a weird is. way to describe it. I mean, you could almost just call this episode Rose Part 2, really. I think this huh. episode works as as good an introduction to the character as the first one. It's funny you say that, actually, because I know that Russell T. Davies wanted the two, these two episodes, Rose and this one, to be broadcast simultaneously. Not simultaneously, but one after the other. I can definitely see why. They are very much sister episodes. Totally. Totally. So then we get all these aliens. Let's talk about them. The aliens. Oh, my gosh. There are so many weird and wonderful aliens. aliens. I love the first one where the, the steward's like, and representing the forest of Cheam, we have trees. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And Jay was such a great character in this episode. Um, it, it's, oh, good. Going back to that Doctor Who confidential that I watched about this, um, the, the woman that plays her, Yasmin Bannerman, I believe Bannerman. her name is. Yeah. Yes. Uh, she She's sitting there and she's getting all this like incredible prosthetic makeup put on because like the way they built her purely from prosthetics is, is gorgeous to look at. Mm. Um, and she's looking at herself in the mirror and she's like, you know, we're not monsters, we're just different. And that is, it feels like such yeah. a mission statement for new Doctor Who is that, you know, the aliens, you're not always meant to perceive them as like alien, like they're just different from us. Exactly. Um, and it's it's just a really great thing for the show to put out there. So we have all these aliens pop up. We've got the mocks of Balhoon. We've got the face of Bo, who will be very um, important later. Yeah, it was interesting seeing the face of Bo and have him not be the focal point of any anything in this episode because I'm used to the face of Bo being quite an important thing. Mm. I almost feel like they built this massive, immensely uh, expensive prop for this episode and we're like, oh, we better use it again because... Let's a character arc around him later. Yeah. <laughs> Because it's just so big and it's it's beautiful as well. I really loved like the ingenuity and creativity that went into all of these aliens. Even the background ones that we don't we barely even see. Like there's ones with wicker faces, there's the like androidy looking ones, there's the big bird, like Mr. and Mrs. Paku, I think they're called. It's just beautiful. It is. It's very much, it gives me, I think between the music and the way that it's all shot and the way it's like beautifully warmly lit and everything, it reminds me of a combination of Star Wars's cantina scene and like Diagon Alley from Harry Potter. Like it's just, you're, mm. you're thrust into this very alien space that's full of like, you, you genuinely don't know where to look first. And I think that's that's just great. Truly. And the Harry Potter thing is very um, apt, I think, that 
description. Um, there are several times when I sort of think about Russell Davies' kind of style is so similar to J.K. Rowling. Just in the, the not obsession with details, that's the wrong kind of thing, but like the complete world. World building. I that's think it. Is what, yeah. That's it. Yeah. For sure. For sure. So then we get that lovely scene where Dave and the Doctor exchange presents or gifts. Yeah. I give you air from my lungs. <laughs> <laughs> it's so intimate. And then later he's like to the mocks of Balhoon, he's like, ah, 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 like coughing all over him. <laughs> like he reserves that reaction specifically for Jave. Yes, it, it's it's really great, isn't it? And it's such a good escalation of a joke as well, because we get the air from my lungs joke with him and Jabe, and you get that wonderful sexual tension between the two of them. Which, side note, episode two, we are already into the fact that the Doctor fucks. And I, I think that is... He, he fucks. It's, you can't ignore it. It's just, it's there. Um, so you get an escalation from that into um, the, uh, what is the, the roly-poly blue man's name? Mox of Balhoon. Mox of Balhoon. He shows up, you know, and I give you my body saliva and he spits on Rose. And it's just the perfect escalation of a dumb joke. Um, oh, it's, that's it's so great. good. Um, I loved, I think this is a, the first Davies episode. I, one of the things that he's like, quite known for is his long convoluted names for things so this is the year this is the we're in the year five billion but he says the year five dot apple dot oh, something stupid like that um oh i know the, the apple joke i was like what <laughs> okay yeah choices oh, were made <laughs> wait do you think it was like the future is sponsored by apple computers or something like that uh Oh, I mean, like that, that could definitely be what it was. I thought it was just a really dumb, like it could have been like the year dot orange and I still would have been like, all right, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just me. I hate comedy, so um, <laughs> that's where we're at. I hate comedy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's 5.5 slash Apple slash 26. I don't think they even make sense, but, you know, that's where we're at now. I don't think it, it does either. Uh, we meet Cassandra next. Cassandra, the wonderful lady, Cassandra, lady Cassandra. Cassandra, of course. I think her name is the Lady Cassandra O'Brien dot Delta 17. Again, a long name. <laughs> O'Brien, though, that's real solid. We can all get behind that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, the, the iconic moisturize me. And it is iconic. I, I refuse uh, to say otherwise. It is iconic. I think it was even a catchphrase for. Well, not a. No, yeah, a catchphrase. Let's go with that. Yeah, let's 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 do it. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, there's a lot to talk about with Cassandra that we will get to a little bit later. But yeah. we get the the first use of a a pop music in this episode that is. It threw me so off guard. I'd completely forgotten it was in this. Mm. Um, so they roll out the, the jukebox and you get like the, you know, oh, this is what the earth humans called an iPod. You're like, oh, haha, I get it because it's big and an iPod was small. Jokes. Again, I hate comedy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can tell now. <laughs> but then, you know, the absolute absurdity of tainted love playing as Rose is standing there watching all of these people just casually observing the end of the world and you she essentially has like a little panic attack um and pairing that with tainted love playing is just this perfect balance of like absurd humor and and dark humor at the same time it's it's really perfect it's a really good stylistic choice and i wish i actually wish the show had continued on this track because this is probably the only episode where like popular music is used in the show i think there's like occasional like whether it's in the background or something but it's not it's not used as as uh, um 
at the forefront as much as it is here. No, it's, it's not a punchline or it's not used to, um, uh, I guess, like an underlying character work in the way that it does in this episode. Hmm. That's it. It's really good. There's a there's a better song coming up, but I can't wait till we get to that. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. So we have we have Rose's little sort of um. I don't want to. It, it is a panic attack in the, everything that uh, it, the way it's shot and the way that she acts it is very much uh, overwhelming. Yeah. Kind of. And look, if you don't want to like sort of too overgeneralize the use of, of the term panic attack, because yeah. uh, I know that um, especially in today's discourse, we do tend to it's like using words like, oh, that's crazy or that's insane. Like the way that we use language around mental health issues is is a bit broken at this point. Um, yeah. We do tend to uh, overuse words. So let's not call it a panic attack. Let's say that she's just experiencing a very understandable high level of anxiety. Totally. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's just, again, Billy Piper coming through with the absolute like MVP of, the, of this season. Absolutely. And then we get that lovely scene with Raffalo after that. Um, chill a little bit and I guess uh, talk to the first sort of alien human face I think the scene with Raffaello is very much like it could be slotted in with a human this isn't a criticism by the way it's just an observation Yeah, you could put a human into that role and it would play almost exactly the same very much so because uh, she needs to have a moment where she connects with somebody enough to sort of um, slow her breathing down and really think about what she's doing which is where you get like that that really good moment like she like we we know it but she the character herself has a moment of revelation about exactly how far from home she is not just in terms of like it's not just that she's in space like she's five was it billion years into five the future billion years yeah Exactly. And so her stumbling into that, um, like properly finally processing that information and, you know, she's there with a stranger that she doesn't really know. She just jumped in, like, essentially she just jumped in the car with a stranger. And yeah. I think it's a very human moment to, to panic over that. And the, the fact that Ruffalo, 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 like, um, those little Correct. disgusting, like Ferrero Rocher knockoffs. Those are, okay. Anyway. <laughs> Um, I think I think it's really good that she has that moment because she does connect with another working class woman. Um, even if like their ideas of working class are separated by five billion years of context, totally. where you get to the point where she needs permission to talk, um, which is, I mean, oof, there's, there's some connotations yeah. there that I, the episode doesn't get into probably for the better because that's a that's a whole episode it, onto itself. It's a whole different discussion, but like yeah, you see that moment, and what this episode is doing is the connection across time, space, and different understandings and perceptions of the world and you get that here where they have that moment of connection over the fact that she's a plumber she's like oh you still have plumbers in the future a little bit of earth a little bit of her life is here and i also like how in this scene rose like because of that moment she gets a little bit of like confidence and she builds herself up and she's like oh so when um rafaela's talking about her planet um where she comes from she's like oh that's a planet and then she's like "Mm, it's not really a planet it's part of this blah 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 and then she techno babbles and you can (laughs) see rose's face being like oh my god i'm so sorry i asked (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely, definitely. Uh, so Rose leaves her alone, and uh, she gets this. Uh, Ruffalo gets this fantastic moment in the 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 vents. I guess like the air ducts with the little uh, robot creatures that kill yeah. her. Classic duct ducks and sci-fi. Yes, what is classic air duct stuff. Exactly. And this is the first time that I noted uh, Murray Gold's score because it felt. Oh. 
like such an invitation to um, like the the stinger that leads from her getting sort of attacked into the was it the overseer what was his name the steward into the steward's office uh, that little like transition sting I'll, I'll try and play it under this if I can uh, it just it, it imbues the episode with so much like adventure and tension it felt very like almost like Spielbergy to me uh, and mm. so it was I mean it's one of the first times in this episode I noted his score but it's certainly not the last. What do you think of the little robots, the robot spiders? I think they are, uh, they're, they're cute. I mean, they're there. <laughs> <laughs> they're pretty good for a CGI uh, creation. I completely forgot they were CGI. Um, mm. But then you see all, every single every single shot, except for like one, I think, physical shot later on, is their CGI, um, which is crazy because there's not really a lot of that in Doctor Who now. Uh, yeah, they do look good. They do. And we get uh, two, just two, two tiny little moments that I quite liked. The the Oompa Loompas parking the TARDIS, I thought was very <laughs> sweet. What, what I quite liked about that moment is that um, because this is a Doctor sort of post-Time War, but before any of the other big stuff starts happening in his life, um, he he's a bit more flippant about like, oh yeah, like I'll just let them take the TARDIS away. Like he's very casual about everything. There's none of that like sense of you know, oh, I need the TARDIS because I need to stop, I don't know, Bad Wolf or the Lone Cyberman or whatever. Like there's none, there's been none of that like grandiose evil in his life again after the war ended. And so he's Mm. just a a bit more flippant and casual about the way he moves through the universe. I think that's just a really charming small moment. I didn't think about that when I first watched it, but I guess, I guess so. What do you think about like in, in later seasons, how uh, like feverish the Doctor is about needing to get back to the TARDIS, you know, like always knowing where the blue box is. And that's because it becomes such an essential weapon in sort of the, um, the, the battles that he goes on to face. Uh, but at, at this point, it's just like, oh yeah, he's just pimping around. Like it doesn't matter too much. <laughs> it's, just, it's just his car at this point. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And it's his home as well. Um, yeah. yeah, I didn't really think about that. That's a good point. Yeah. So after this scene, we get the wonderful scene uh, with the Doctor and Rose. I could record an entire episode about this moment. <laughs> totally. Uh, I did O2 fold Kel Knight. It's just beautiful, isn't it? Is that a uh, Kathleen King reference? Yes, it was a Kathleen King reference. I'm really glad you picked up on that. <laughs> oh my God. Choice. <laughs> choices were made all right (laughs) um so rose and the doctor on the observation deck their entire confrontation there and everything that sort of comes out about both of their characters is one of the linchpin moments of this episode i think it's almost like the first time the show's actually even questioned what the doctor like what the morality of him bringing another human being on his travels it kind of was starting to do this towards the end of with sirsten mccoy and he did some real questionable stuff with his companion it's Sylvester McCoy the one with the um question marks on his like he had an umbrella question mark and he had bre- he had umbrellas all over his jumper and mm-hmm. the, the less said about that the better it was a weird there was a weird fixation through the whole 80s of putting question marks on everything although what I do like about the Sylvester McCoy era from what I understand because I haven't seen any of them but I watched this I'm gonna link it in the show notes there's a really fantastic youtuber who I'm, I'm forgetting the name of at the moment but he did this really good um, sort of like you know eight part documentary about the history of the show and from what I can gather about the Sylvester McCoy era is that there was some very deliberate morally gray character work going on with the doctor and I think having a return to that now is an interesting sort of way of, of um, you know, you footnote the, the end of the classic with it and you begin the new stuff with it as well, I think is uh, an interesting um, connection. 
Totally. And it's funny you say that as well, because a lot of people have noted the similarities here between Rose and Ace, who was the companion, the last companion of the... Yeah. Ace did really seem like a proto-modern companion. Totally. Uh, And they really followed that through with Rose as well. Working class, and she's, you know, a teenager, is, you know... Moxie. She's got some moxie, but also in the sense that the show is centred around her and her experiences travelling on the TARDIS. Yeah, I think nothing maybe encapsulates Rose's um, uh, independence more than the confrontation with... So, you know, she says, oh, you know, the the aliens are just so alien. How am I understanding them? And the Doctor very casually... And this is something that the show has never addressed before as far as I I know. He's very casually just like, oh, yeah, the TARDIS is inside your head just translating everything. And what I've always considered that to be a really cool plot device for the show, the way that Davies writes Rose is that she takes um, almost the much more natural human reaction to it of, do you mean to tell me that you're inside my head without my permission? Mm -hmm. And it becomes a conversation about um, consent, essentially. I think that's really interesting. (laughs) The translation circuit was introduced in Mask of Med. Dragora, the 70s Tom Baker story. But yeah, you're right. In, in that episode, he just said, oh, it's a gift of the TARDIS. I share it with you. And Sarah Jane's like, yeah, all right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just interesting because Rose, um, at, at every chance, she rebels against the assumptions of the of not just the Doctor, but of the show Doctor Who. She, she exists yeah. to challenge the existing dynamic that the show imposes upon its, its women. Uh, and I think that's just excellent on on russell's part that he he managed to write such a interesting character right off the bat that does challenge Mm. this stuff yeah it's really really it's i think it's almost necessary really i don't think the show could have continued on without addressing some of these sort of underlying implications of the relationship that the doctor and the companion have to sort of share how they come to an understanding about what time travel is it's a really kind of sad conversation as well because they're just not they're both she sort of says to him, tell me who you are. He's like, this is who I am. All that counts is here and now. She's like, yeah, well, I'm here too because you brought me here. And they're just firing on two different levels and not understanding one another at all. Yeah, they're completely out of sync. They're taking shots at each other. It's um, it's genuine tension between mm. the two characters. Because Rose has a right to this knowledge, right? She has a, ro- a right to know who she's hitched up with. And also, uh, the flip side of that is the Doctor has a right to grieve and to deal with his trauma. Maybe he's not dealing with it in the best way, and we don't really know what that trauma is at this point. That natural tension sort of um, escalates into a little bit of like a, a fight between the two of them, um, mm-hmm. where she says, you know, you're too busy taking cheap shots about the Deep South to really expose himself to her. And it did remind me, I'm going to do my requisite once an episode Clara mention here. It reminded me of Clara's really great moment with the Doctor when she says, you know, you walk out Earth, you breathe out air. And it's it's two companions that are challenging the fact that the Doctor is simultaneously like really aggressively inserting himself into the human experience while trying to maintain an alien distance from it. And you can't do both things because it's just not how emotions work. You can't do that to a person. And it's it's just really good to see. So one of the, I think my favourite thing about this whole scene, though, is the and it's the Doctor fixes Rose's phone so that she can talk to her mum. Yes, and, and talk to her mum across that a, a sort of huge expanse of time is um, a really good way of responding to her pain. Um, like he, he sort of like he still does it to deflect questions about his own trauma, um, but he connects her with her past 
to avoid talking about his past. I think that's just really beautiful. Mm. Another really, a small thing I really like about uh, Billy's performance here is, you know, when her mum says to her, like, you know, are you alright, love, or whatever? She mm. says, yeah, top of the world. And she <laughs> just, like, bites her little finger. And it's just, it's that, like, playfulness of Rose coming back in to sort of balance out the the more, the, the darker elements of Rose that we had been seeing up until this point in the episode. Um, and the way Billy Piper can just sort of transition between t- two states of being for Rose. I love... Um... You're absolutely right. And I also, the other thing I love is like Jackie's absolute mundanity. Mundanity, is that even a word? Um, oh, it can be. Well, I'm going to turn it into a word. Because um, she's obviously like, you know, just she's just doing the laundry. It's just a normal day for her. She has that wonderful line where she's like, it's, it's such a mum thing, but when Mark, where Rose, you know, says what day is it, she's like, Wednesday, all day. Um, yeah. She's just so sweet and endearing. God, I love Jackie. She is. We are we are a Jackie Stan cast first and foremost. We, we, we established that. Um, she she is really great. And and the 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 chemistry between uh, Billy Piper and I don't know who plays Jackie. Do you know Camille Cordury? Well, their their natural chemistry as mother and daughter feels so natural. Um, I, I believe them immediately. Mm-hmm. I believe them in this episode. I believe them in this one. They're not even. Uh, together in the same scene, but it just feels so organic. Um, so next we get, um, I guess the plot starts to unfold a little bit more here with the spiders dispatching of the steward by lowering the sun filter. I like how <laughs> this death, essentially like form of execution, um, is uh, can be triggered by one key, like one key on his keyboard. <laughs> Yes, it's it's <laughs> it's definitely interesting, and again, it goes back to the plot is is not the main focus of this episode. Like, it's just no. kind of a means to an end. Uh, and you know, it's Doctor Who, so you, you need to have your requisite number of people be like, "No," as, as something bad happens to them, so the Doctor can inevitably save everybody else from the same fate. Uh, but yeah, it, it's very amusing that it can just you know tap one key, and suddenly there's no way to raise the shield again. <laughs> It's weird, but I love it. It's weird though. And then we have the the scene uh, in the where we go back to the main hall, and there's a little mention of Bad Wolf. Now I don't know what that could all be about, but oh, is there? Yeah. Oh, you didn't know. Oh, this is I completely place. missed it. Uh, it's so not even like essential to the plot, but um, there's a we as the scene cuts into the main hall. There's a conversation between the face of Bo and the mocks of Balhoon, and he says, "You know, this is the Bad Wolf scenario." Oh, yeah. The first mention. Interesting. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Then we get Rose and Cassandra have their fantastic chat. It's good, isn't it? It's very good. Cassandra is a genuinely disgusting character. <laughs> She's awful, but beautifully made. I I forgot how good the effect is. Really, like I think obviously our perception gets a little bit. You know, it changes with time as, you know, better as computer effects get better and better moving forward. But like for what the budget they were on, like what they achieved with Cassandra is amazing. And you have all the pulsing little veins around the edge and like she is like somewhat semi-transparent. Um, her face is like totally expressive. You can see through her mouth. It's such a good effect. Um, and Cassandra's really lovely, uh, a very lovely performance from Zoe Wanamaker. So good, in fact, that they call it back. I was going to say, I know this definitely isn't the fir- the last time that we see Cassandra. I, I quite like <laughs> where they're headed with Cassandra in the future, but we'll get there. And it's a good balance of, you know, when she first rolls into the room, she's obviously quite 
you know, she, she's quite vain. She demands everyone's, everybody's attention. She's horribly disfigured in terms of what we consider to be a human being. And that is uh, such an interesting balance to what uh, Davies envisioned of, you know, you guys never imagine the impossible that you might survive is quite mm. a hopeful read on the future of humanity. And then Cassandra is the complete opposite direction. You know, she's, she's capitalistic, she's vain, she's a monster. <laughs> um, and I think having both of those things present in the same episode as a kind of yin and yang is uh, a real, um, a real strength of, of what this show can do. Totally. I want to ask you a question about Cassandra because uh, an interesting thing that I didn't realize when Russell T. Davies was writing the episode, Cassandra was inspired by him seeing like um, stick, what well, he, I think he uses these words, um, like stick thin uh, models uh, and celebrities on red carpets and things. And he pointed out specifically Nicole Kidman as an example, as an inspiration for this character, because he was saying really? how, like, yeah, how ill and thin she looked like in photos. Oh, wow. That is I, some shade. Well, yeah, it is. And so I want to ask you if what your feeling is around, like, knowing that information, because when I hear that, it sounds a little bit blamey towards these women for looking this way and for plastic surgery in general, as opposed to maybe the systemic culture that exists that would make them feel inadequate enough to do this to themselves yeah absolutely i think you just kind of perfectly nailed it with with what you summed up there like i (laughs) think that it's i think it's okay for him to um have wanted to do some sort of social commentary on that and i definitely don't get the impression from cassandra that it's um i don't think the character itself is blamey but i think having that conversation around your inspiration behind the character and specifically citing women by name is uh, I would say a touch problematic. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, have, I have mixed feelings about the whole thing because I love Cassandra as a character and like the way she's performed. And, and also just like she is enough of a remove from that initial point of inspiration because she's a capitalist and she, you know, is in like dressed up as very, very evil. And that there's no hint of like that this has been entirely her choice to do, to operate and turn herself into this creatures um for purity for pure reasons i think she refers yeah it's interesting because the the conversation of of quote-unquote purity around cassandra um is that i i I definitely got the impression that a lot of her desire to remain as the last pure human as as she calls herself i mean she 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 calls other races mongrels um Mm. and she has that conversation about the humans that have gone on to mate with other races um I, I think it's just pure, like, xenophobia. Yeah, the use of the word mongrel is very loaded. It's, like, very yes, intentional. very much so. Um, um, I definitely don't see her as a commentary on uh, beauty standards in as so much as she is a commentary on racism. It is much more what I got from Cassandra. Totally. That's a very good distinction, a very um, important distinction to make, I think. Maybe you can sort of say that the initial point of inspiration for that character didn't make it to the page. Which is probably for the best, given oh, what we've just learned. Definitely. Um, yeah, but look, you're just lipstick and skin. I can't believe that she calls her a bitchy trampoline. I forgot that. I know. That line was there. Definitely. When I heard the word bitchy, I was like, oh, this show was like a little sweary. <laughs> like, this show was sweary, yeah. 
Like when it was finding its identity, I think it just had a little bit more, um, a bit more teeth when it, when it comes to what it was willing to to dive mm. into. Um, and having a companion in their second episode, their first time meeting alien races, and obviously Cassandra's not an alien, but she's presented as quite alien. And so having Rose come into the situation with all of the confidence in the world to just say, you're just a bitchy trampoline and walk off. Mm. Um, it's really great. It's so good. Um and also just shows off Cassandra's also contempt for Rose. Like she doesn't even view Rose as human or as the last human. Yeah, and that's it. You've got like essentially on this space station, the two last humans viewing each other as complete opposites of what a human should be. Yeah. It's ripe for further exploration. It, it definitely is. It, it definitely is. Cassandra is, I mean, yeah, regardless of where she came from, what he managed to achieve with her and Rose is very impressive, I'd say. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, and so they pair off in this scene, and then the other pairing is between the Doctor and Jade. I do want to backtrack just slightly because we missed something that I <laughs> – a little exchange that I found so hilarious um, when – Jabe comes up to the doctor and Rose and she's like, she implies that Rose is the doctor's wife. And he's like, no, she's not my wife. And she goes, partner, concubine, prostitute. She calls Rose a prostitute. She does. I love that Rose is just staying there like, right, well, I'm right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, it's, uh, it's, it's great. It, it's just a really another, another perfect moment for the doctor not to defend Rose and for Rose to, to, to defend herself. Exactly. She, yeah, she absolutely has her own voice here um, in a way that companions never had before. It's really good. Uh, I also just quite like Jabe's um, characterization here, like, and the way that her interaction with technology um, and her culture as well is expressed. She calls the machine the computer on the station, the metal mind, you know, she talks to her like little handheld device like it was a living organic creature. Like it's. I, I agree. I noticed the same thing. There's a, uh, and I do imagine this is because they evolved from trees. There's a, just a very different outlook on um, inanimate objects is the vibe that I'm getting from the, the tree people. Exactly. Uh, and I, I think that's just a really, it's a small touch of characterization that goes a long way because Jay feels very fleshed out. She's totally fleshed out. And this is the first alien that actually probably, uh, well, especially with Nuhu, you didn't get a lot of these kind of characters in the old show. You've got a few here and there. Mostly mm. like characters like I'm thinking of like Sutek, uh, Monarch in the Alpha Centauri. Alpha Centauri, yeah, exactly. Where they were individuals of a species or an um, alien race that had a personality all to themselves. But more often than not, like when aliens came to Doctor Who, they were you know one of they were all identical. They all had like almost like a hive mind. Um, and they all. Whereas here you, you see all these different characters, all these different aliens with their own personalities and their own, yeah, uh, ambitions or whatever the case may be. It's, it's so much better than what has been done in the past. And that leads to a really fantastic, like the, the Time Lord reverie scene where Jabe, um, she obviously clocks onto what the Doctor is pretty early on in the episode. Uh, and while he's, you know, fiddling with panels and they, they have that really kind of like great Scooby-Doo moment of, you know, running around in vents together and, mm. you know, being all like, oh, I love a challenge or I love a disaster or whatever. It's all very cute and wonderful. Mm. So it kind of catches you off guard when it shifts gears so suddenly into the compassion that she shows him for the loss that she specifically understands he's experienced. Yeah. Uh, the little placing of her hand on his arm. It's, it's a wordless exchange between these two really incredible actors. And yeah. you feel just the 
entire crushing weight of this shared pain that they both are aware of. We've talked a lot about Billy Piper in this episode, but yeah, I think Chris Eccleston is, uh, let's just comment on him here for a moment. Cause his, mm-hmm. his, like he doesn't, his expression doesn't change at all in that shot you see of his face. No, but you see the flash of emotions from like anger to grief to guilt to whatever. Like just it's all there. It's beautiful. It's so much of it. And with um uh Bannerman's performance as well, like the way those two play off of each other, they could almost be Doctor and Companion on their own. Um they have such an organic chemistry you get this a lot don't you with like the doctor and would-be companions there are a few of them so we get the this is it's a really good moment it's the first moment that alludes to the time war i guess um yeah yeah i'd say so like or rather i mean i know there's that stuff in rose about um Mm. sort of you know i couldn't save you i couldn't save anybody uh it's just another piece of the puzzle um and instead of being such a big moment you know where he's you know about to be fucking thrown off of the edge of of something and he's yelling about it with the tardis looming in the background this is just a quiet moment between two um alien races and it's another good thing about what jabe is as a tree you get the impression that she has lived a long life and so it's yeah. two ancient alien races um sharing in a quiet moment of compassion for each other it's just great <laughs> it's really really good um they have a shared kind of yeah you're right you're absolutely right and look, I think this specifically speaks to having a, a gay man as the showrunner, but we hard cut from that incredible, uh, sad moment. Uh, we go back to Cassandra having a chat with all the aliens together because, you know, the time of the, the end of the world is upon us. Uh, and she gets that great moment, let us mourn her, the earth, with a traditional ballad. Mm. And then Britney Spears' Toxic starts playing. So, so good. I can't tell you how much I love this um, moment. I love little bits of pop culture popping up in Doctor Who. Um, it really kind of grounds it in a specific time. I know like it's probably better that the show try and go for a more timeless kind of feel, which would mean that you wouldn't make many popular culture references, but this just feels so perfect. Yeah. This just it does. Great. And the fact that it, it keeps playing, it's not just like mm. you don't get just get like the of the opening of the song and then we kind of move along from the joke the joke is that it is playing as the world is ending as we're seeing all these alien races gather to watch it and the idea that you know five billion years into the future a traditional ballad of earth would be a britney spears song is just we have to stand it's incredible i have to stand (laughs) totally um it's really really good and then uh it also transitions to that scene with rose trapped in the in the gallery, I guess we could call it. Um, yeah, yeah. And it, it, it does mark the point that the episode becomes suddenly very plot-heavy and it, it yeah. just becomes a bit muddled. <laughs> it all, well, uh, yeah, it, it does a little bit, unfortunately. There's a lot of, I think the sun filter in and of itself that is a bit confusing. It's um, presented a bit confusingly. I don't, I remember watching this episode initially and not understanding fully what was what was actually happening. Uh, this is me as a kid, by the way, so I would hope that I've gained some level of understanding by now. Um, yeah. But um, That's, like, I know we, we obviously spent a lot of this episode talking more about the character moments and the plot that's been going on sort of in the background of things. But, you know, you've got Cassandra's little robots are running around wreaking havoc on the machinery um, in what seems to be a plot to blow up the station. She escapes and then she 
you know, gets the insurance money is what it comes down to. Essentially. Yeah. There's something about the delegates and shares in their companies and all kinds of. Yeah. It, it's like, um, it's like when in Phantom Menace, you know, they're talking about <laughs> trade negotiations and <laughs> you're like, um, <laughs> yeah, okay. it's, it is the plot, but it's not important one jot to what's actually happening um it's just addressing to what's really going on here which is summed up nicely and you know it's that humanity commentary you know five billion years and it still comes down to money yeah we get the um a little moment with the repeated memes the adherence of the repeated memes uh were memes a thing in 2005 this thing, I'm not sure. I, I planned on looking this up before we started recording, so I didn't sound like a total fucking moron. Um, but I didn't look it up. So if memes were 2005, I guess let us know in the comments. <laughs> I think they might have been, like, the concept of a meme was a thing. Because a meme is just, I think the doctor even says it in here, the meme is just a, a repetition of an idea. So we get uh, a lot of really good lines here. I'm just going to, I honestly just want to, like, read them out because it's such a quotable script. Um, there's the line where Cassandra says, I bet you were the school swat never got kissed. Um, <laughs> when she says flatness costs a fortune, she tells the mocks of Balhoon yes. to shut up Pixie. Like <laughs> That's it. The transition from like her sort of gaudy um, presentation of herself into just being an open racist is, mm. is such a great like second that happens. Well, the moment she's been exposed because, you know, the doctor does some like, robot magic and then they they the other little robots go back to her and it exposes her as being behind the whole plot and blah 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 and it it just facilitates a a really interesting sequence of events uh entirely centered around cassandra it really really does i think the episode really had positioned her as the main kind of alien of this trio but um it comes to a head here in the scene yeah i don't like the doctor's line when he's like you lot just chill when he like the planet is about to burn (laughs) Like that. Yeah, they've got like what? Like there's like some arbitrary, you know, five minutes till planet destruction or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, when he leaves the room with Jay, he's just kind of like, oh, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah. It, again, a show finding its feet. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, trying to get the script to flow a bit more naturally. And that's something that we like we just talked about. Like the way that the plot happens in this last like third act is is very messy. Um, it's not mm. it's not great. Because you have these giant fans. And they're not, I like them as a concept. Like it is like an, yeah. an obvious obstacle. Um, but like in terms of like sense, they don't make a lot of it. No, well, like the thing is, I think you could easily write around if you want to have the giant fans as a set piece. Cause I think as a set piece, it works quite well. It gives Christopher Eccleston a chance to show off some acting ability. Yeah. Uh, it, it gives the episode like, um, I'm not going to say a much needed like action set piece, but it, it does seem to be the purview of new Doctor Who that there's always got to be something big happening at some point. So you get to have that moment as well. Mm. Um, but if you had just said, you know, instead of like the master control switch for the computers being behind the switch, you had like the venting switch being in that room instead. Just just something that makes it a little bit more believable that he'd have to dodge those fans. Yeah. Uh, it is but what it is. It is what it is. And honestly, it's not even the point of this uh, scene, really. I mean, I think there's something quite important really happens in this scene, actually, is the first of a thousand sacrifices that are made for the Doctor. 
Yeah, I mean, death is his constant companion. Like, it's just, it, it's always going to happen in, in an episode. It's unfortunate. Um, and especially with Jabe, it, it's quite unfortunate because she is such a, a fleshed out presence in this episode that it does hurt to have her die as part of a plot that is as contrived as this ending is. Yeah, the fact that she's made of wood and like, there's not, uh, do they say anything about the heat venting through this space? I don't remember. Yeah, there's like a throwaway line of, you know, once once I flip that switch, a whole bunch of heat's going to come through here and you're made of wood and yeah, yeah, yada, yada, yada. And it's just, it's, it's just a little too clean. Um, yeah. Or, I mean, messy clean. I know that, like, oddly two sides of the same co- coin when you're talking about plot structure, um, but it's just, it's it's too conveniently written as, as a, a sacrifice. It is a bit convenient, you're right. And it's also a bit horrific. Like, she burns and... You, the her screams as well like it's just it paints a very dark picture it does i honestly i was expecting like a baby group moment you know sort of amongst the ashes uh-huh. he finds like a little sapling that's her growing again i think that would have been a much nicer way of handling this um oh. but look it, it's fine you can't change it now <laughs> it is what it is while this is happening, we've got Rose back in the observation room because I forgot she's just trapped in there for like the entire third act, essentially. Uh, the, the show removes her from the plot so that the doctor and Jabe can have their moment. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's mostly fine. Uh, Rose has had more than enough to do in this episode that I'm okay with her again, having the more contrived, you know, the door's locked <laughs> moment. <laughs> uh, it feels very classic Doctor Who that, you know, it's just a door in the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it, it, again, it's the plot contrivances showing themselves, but it's fine really, because it, we get, after that, we get that wonderful one. Well, it's really quite another dark moment really with, um, where the doctor, shall we say, sacrifices Cassandra? I, uh, I wouldn't say he sacrifices her. I'd say he kills her. Um, kills her. and yeah. that's, you know, well, yeah. So let's. It doesn't do anything to help her. No, that's it. So, what? Cassandra teleports away. Uh, he goes into the fan room, turns turns back on the shields and whatever. The you know the, the station is saved, and then being the smart man that he is, he does his sonic screwdriver stuff and reverses the polarization of the teleportation or whatever it was and brings Cassandra back. And, you know, she comes back in and she's, you know, in the middle of her gloating villain speech when she warps back in, which is, is a cute little touch. She's not really um, gloating because she's um, kind of been called back. This wasn't part of her plan. This is a hitch in the plan. No, no, no. But like when, when she gets called back to that room, she's in the middle of talking to whoever she's talking to somewhere else. And she's saying, you should have seen their faces kind of thing. Ah, uh, yeah. And so she gets pulled back in and then they, they have that exchange where the doctor um, says, you know, like you were going to kill all these people. And she has that great line, depends on your definition of people. And it's a good callback to Rose at the beginning of the episode saying to the Doctor, um, they have that little exchange about, are there going to be people here? What do you mean by people? I mean people, what do you mean? I mean aliens. And it, it's a it's a flip on that at, at the end here to have um, Cassandra's justification essentially being, well, I don't consider aliens to be people, so as far as I'm concerned, this isn't murder. Um, and it's just, it's very dark. It is dark. And it also, it's something of a um, another sort of repetitious uh, line that's used through the show is when he says everything has its time and everything dies uh i think we hear that line more than once uh in the seasons to come and it is another like basic part of the show is that you know you can't stave off death forever you can't 
Exactly. She's and it's a, it's a odd contrast to the way that he, or the way that the Doctor as a character grows to feel about humanity over the New Who seasons where, you know, by the time you get to what mm. Whitaker's doing, so it's very much the doctor is pro 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 human and so to have him yeah in this iteration sort of just casually watch the last quote unquote the last human shatter and die is fascinating yes yes he, he, i can't imagine the show doing this kind of scene anymore that's for sure no definitely not because the doctor isn't anywhere near as damaged as this doctor is anymore and then the plot kind of wraps up it, it does. It does. I, I do have another, just a small note about when the doctor, so Cassandra, she realizes that she's cracking and she's about to die. Right. And Rose steps forward and Rose is the one that, you know, she quietly just says to the doctor, like help her. But because the doctor and the companion are such, um, they don't have that bond formed yet. Right. It means that he doesn't hear Rose when she's really talking to him there. And so subsequently she can't fulfill the role that the companion has to do sometimes with the doctor in saving them from themselves because the doctor would go on to regret that kind of a decision. That's not a very doctor choice to make. Mm. Um, and so having Rose not have the ability to reach him and save him from that mistake because they're so early in their relationship and he is so despondent to um, genuine connection is Again, just really solid writing. It's really good, yeah. Um, and that, that transitions into, you know, Rose goes off and she has a little moment where she's watching the the world burning up and you know, she says all those years, all that history, and no one was even looking, you know, because they were too busy trying to, you know, stop the plot from happening, essentially. Um, and it's, it's, I think, the first moment in this episode that the Doctor genuinely sees that he has to do more for her. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'd be quite that literal about it. Um, because, I, I, yeah, I don't know what you mean by do more for her. Well, like, so the first time that she, like, they had that fight in the observation room the first time and he recognises her pain, but instead of him directly dealing with it, he just connects her with her mum and just kind of stands back and lets those two have a chat, right? Whereas in this scene, there's there's no sidestepping on his part. He he, he literally reaches out and takes her hand. Um, and it's the, it just, it's to me, it's the first time that he directly recognises his role of, like that duty of care thing that comes up um, during the Capaldi era. Um, it's that him stepping into the role of, you know, being a guide to this human. Mm. It's significant, I guess, and we don't really get a lot of this until later in the season, but it's significant that she doesn't have a father figure, maybe. Um, I wouldn't say he takes on a father figure role as such with Chris Circles, no. but um, that kind of guiding mentor, maybe he feels... I think mentor is um, a, a much more apt description because I don't get the impression that there's much of a, a gender dynamic going on between these two until you get to the romance stuff. Um no. I love this scene. I really, really do. It's my, it's, yeah, gosh, it's, I, I'm almost like awed by it. But the, my one favorite moment, and I honestly, I would almost like get a high res image and put it on my wall if I could. My one favorite moment is when they step out of the TARDIS and it's just Rose in the middle of that busy street. I love it so much. Um, I love how out of place she suddenly looks in the middle of that yeah, scene. Definitely. Um, Amidst all those people and all that hustling and bustling humanity. And she's just standing there as this kind of like beacon of different now. <laughs> yeah. 
it's really, really good stuff. It's really, and it just speaks volumes as to how much already in like what two episodes she's changed her experiences traveling on the TARDIS have changed her. Um, mm. Yeah, it's brilliant. And the music. Yeah. And the other, t- yeah, the music. This is the other time I noted his score because what Murray Gold does in this moment, it, oh, it, it made me tear up. Like I, I thought it was such a beautiful moment. Well, this is the first moment it. with um, Rose's theme. This is her theme. Oh, music playing. There you go. A little bit of behind the scenes for you listeners. Uh, in the first episode of our podcast, I was like, oh, and this is the first time we hear Rose's theme. And CJ just <laughs> smacked me the fuck down about that. Um, so I, I cleaned that one out of the, the episode. But it's it's good to know that we're finally at the first time we hear Rose's theme. Uh, yeah, I think it's the first time. Yeah, yeah. From the from the moment she looks out the window to, and then it segues into the Doctor's theme when he starts talking about um, the time war and his people. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You had a note you wanted to say about the way Rose forgives, or yes. So the only real negative I have about this episode, other than the plot contrivance stuff, is that uh, the transition from a traumatized Rose from the the events of the episode into just being all like, oh, chips are on me then, come on, let's go on a date. And they get all like cuddly and she's smiling and like they walk off and it's this like, to me it feels like a very jarringly happy ending to what is not a happy episode. Uh, and I just find that transition very rough. I would agree with you if it hadn't, the show hadn't already signposted in the previous two episodes that that's kind of their relationship. You get that scene in Rose where they're standing outside of the London Eye and they're having the argument about Mickey and then Rose pivots and talks about, you know, the TARDIS and they then she's smiling and they're talking about the anti-plastic and all that stuff. You And even in this episode, like, you know, they're having the argument and then Rose makes the decision to meet the Doctor and, you know, make the joke about the designated driver. So I, yeah. I see in their relationship a lot that Rose is, gosh, making concessions maybe. I don't think it's as simple as that, but um, she is looking past the the flaws i guess of this character and the potential flaws in their relationship because she is so enamored with the adventure and the potential for moving forward so i yeah i see i hear what you're saying but yeah i uh i can't agree <laughs> yeah no, that, that's fair I, I i agree with that and this is a um maybe like my i think my largest point about the episode just on the thematic level is that her first adventure away from earth or off of off planet um is one that really forces her to completely change the way that she thinks about time and life and the fragility of everything. Uh, Because the doctor takes her to um, a place that is so out of order on, on such an incomprehensible scale that it does have to essentially rewire her brain to think about these things very differently. And so in that regard, I do kind of concede that um, she would be experiencing such huge changes at this point that it would be a lot easier for her to just be like, Oh, okay, let's, Let's go and get some chips, you know? That's it. I think that's exactly what the intention of that final scene is. Just everything that I've seen and felt is so enormous. I just want I just want to feel good. I just want chips and I want normality and then I want to get back in the TARDIS. It's good. I like chips. Uh, and that pretty much brings us to the the end of the world. The end of the end of the world. Yeah, it does. Um, what would you rate that one, James? I think that one is a solid A minus. I, I much prefer this episode to Rose. Um, and I think if once we sort of look back on everything and we talk about, you know, favorite episodes, this one is is pretty up there for me. 
I think I'd agree with that. Yeah, A minus feels pretty pretty accurate. Yeah, it's not one that I would go back to ever again. That's quite harsh. Um, it's not one that I revisit, shall we say? Um, but it has some really key, beautiful moments and scenes in it. But I think this is the yeah. From this point on, the ventures really kind of start. Um, it's interesting because I don't have any memory of the Unquiet Dead, so I'm I'm very intrigued to see where we're headed next with all of this. Me too. I think I might have a, a different reaction than I used to um, to this episode, but um, that mm. will be next week. It, it will be. So, uh, for Two Hearts, I have been James. You can follow me on Twitter at, at OMGMoreJames. And I've been CJ. You can follow me at McLean underscore. Wonderful. And uh, we will see you next week to talk about the Unquiet Dead. Exactly. Um, it's it's yeah. Sorry, I have nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <Okay. laughs> That's I've I've legit stopped taking time notes on when to edit. I'm just gonna have to listen through and edit the whole thing anyway. So. <laughs> Oh, okay, what do we got?